Hello, you're listening to Thrive, the podcast about how people are working with water, land and ecosystems to make a sustainable food future. This episode features a conversation I had a little while ago with Deborah Bossier, a researcher with the International Center for Tropical Agriculture who's based in Nairobi, in Kenya. She was very excited because Kenya was about to launch Africa's first water fund, a public-private partnership aiming to raise $15 million to provide clean water to more than 9 million people. And how are they doing it? Partly by giving farmers in the Tana River Basin incentives to change the way they farm. Helping people change the way they farm seems to be what drives Deborah Bossia. It underpins her approach to the intensification of agriculture, which, she says, needs to become more knowledge-intensive and more management-intensive. She's also optimistic about the Sustainable Development Goals and how they might help to fix the system. We started, though, with Deborah's role in the CGIR research program on water, land and ecosystems. I'm co-leader of two, two areas. One of them is the Regenerating Degraded Agroecosystems. It's a flagship where we do a lot of work uh, on the ground uh, restoring degraded lands with, with uh, farmers. And then the second one is co-leading the Ecosystem Services and Resilience Cross-Cutting Core Theme. And that core theme is more about actually aligning all of WLE towards our larger goals of the program. Okay, um, just quick refresher. What are the larger goals of the program? The larger goals of the program. Okay, this is going to sound very grandiose. We actually want to provide the evidence base that's going to create change in the future of agriculture. That does sound grandiose. It's very grandiose. But it, it's very important. We're not the only peoples who are interested in this concept that really the agriculture has got to really change. The way it's going now and has been business as usual is not going to sustain us over the next 50 years, given the way people's diets are changing, given the way we're using up our resources at a a rate. So there has to be a change, and we want to be in there helping to create that change. Degraded landscapes working with farmers. Wasn't it farmers who originally degraded the landscape? Yeah, that's that's one of those chicken and eggs things, isn't it? A lot of the farmers, uh, really what they're doing is the best that they can possibly do within the context that they have. If you look at these smallholder farmers in Malawi, they have no money. They have, they're working on very, very small plots of land. They don't have a lot of choices about what they can do. So if their practices are not supporting, you know, sustaining the land, you can't say it's the fault of the farmers doing, they're doing what they have to do within their context. So that's why one of the thing, one of the main things that we're doing is looking at higher levels of the social and political and economic contexts that are, are there for the farmers and trying to influence those, trying to find incentives and tweaks in those things so that the farmers can actually do something better. What kinds of things can you tweak that enable the farmers to do better work? Well, a lot of the one we look at is the economics, the tweaking the economic situation, because here's another great example. The Tana Basin is in Kenya, and it's the basin that feeds the water to Nairobi City. So this basin provides uh, drinking water for 4 million people in Nairobi. Uh, I think it's 90% of the water comes from, from there. A lot of the hydropower for Nairobi and, and the water is from this basin. And the farmers are being blamed for poor practices upstream that create erosion, that's messing up the hydropower plants, it's messing up 
the clean water. And so what's happened is over the last few years, with the Nature Conservancy, with the Water Resources Association of Kenya, but also with private companies, Kenjen, the, the power company, and the breweries, they want clean water to brew beer, Coca-Cola, and these types of things. All of them have got together and said, okay, this is a problem all of us in common. And so those people who realize they'll save a whole bunch of money in their processes are going to put that money into uh, an endowment, a charitable trust, that will then be used to support the farmers who are changing their practices upstream. So we change the entire dynamic by looking at the wider landscape of what's happening, who's benefiting from what, and making sure that those who benefit from any changes are actually the ones helping to support the change. Because the farmers don't directly benefit so well as the the power company, for example. That's really interesting because that's exactly what happened in New York City and the farmers in the Catskills. Exactly, exactly. And that Catskills was like the example that everyone used forever and forever, and it was like the only example. It went over and over and over. It's the only yeah, thing you ever heard. All you ever heard was the Catskills. All you ever heard was the Catskills. But now, actually, the situation has changed a lot, and there's a whole lot of water funds operating in Latin America, a lot. If you, There's dots all over the map. And so in Latin America, it's all over the place. And now, finally, we're actually starting to see it emerge in Africa. What we're really trying to do is quantify the services so that we can enable these types of things to happen. And we're doing the same now in Malawi and in Tanzania. It's remarkable change of fortunes. But what, what got you to this point in your life? I mean, what was your background? Yeah, I, I was a, um, a young wanderer. I traveled around the world trying to see things and explore and find out what what was happening. And I became really fascinated when I was quite young in how people were living in these communities, these uh, quite harsh environments. The one that most struck me was in Ladakh, in north north uh, uh, western India, where it's a very, very harsh environment. And people live in the tiny little valleys where they irrigate their barley fields and grow apricots. And, and I, when I left that, when I was there, I thought, wow, it's amazing. How do these people do it? How do they survive here? And they had these apparently very sophisticated, beautiful lives, a very sophisticated culture, uh, strong family values, and all of that. And so then I went back to university and I studied these things. And I ended up moving more and more towards agriculture and the science of agriculture and soil science. And ever since then, I've actually been, it's been my interest to help make those systems sustainable and, and support the people. So are you, are you by training uh, an anthropologist and a soil scientist? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm really a soil scientist, a biophysical scientist. So I try to surround myself also with social scientists because I realize that really we need the multiple perspectives all together to actually address any of these problems. With soil science alone is not going to solve the problems. And you mentioned Ladakh. Um, was, was that like a kind of, uh, moment of, of revelation for you? I, yeah, I think it was, actually. It was, because I was hiking through the region. It was a long time ago, I won't say. It will age me. But um, I was hiking through the region uh, with a friend, and we were staying at people's homes. And it was just such a lovely time. And I uh, so appreciated the people and what they were doing and how really beautiful their their environment was. But I realized it was very, very harsh. They're under snow most of the time. There's no real rain. The only thing they have is these rivers. And their culture is so interesting. I went back to college and I studied and it turns out they they practice, um, what is it called? 
polyandry. Polyandry, isn't it, where they have multiple husbands for one woman to keep the population control under? They had the whole thing ecologically balanced, controlling their own population, uh, being able to store the food that they grew over, over the winters, the really long, long, long cold winters. And it was just this incredible balance that, of nature that they were in. And I see that our planet now is completely out of whack, completely out of balance. And I just don't, I am worried about it, actually. But do we have to have a culture in which we grow barley and apricots and, and spend the winter waiting for the snow to melt? I mean, how do you, how, how do you square uh, progress yes. yeah. with, with sustainability? Yeah. No, and, and, and my, my idea of, of what's utopia has also changed a lot since that time when I was quite young and I thought that's perfect and wonderful. Now actually what I would like to do is live in a real city. And I think most other people do too. You want to live in a city where there's services, where there's other people, where you can eat what you want and you can walk in the streets and get around easily. And I think that actually the urbanization is what we have to start to work with to find the solutions, not this idea that everyone has to stay you know, on the farmland, but how do we get the urbanization that's going to happen that we're all actually wanting to actually work for us? But I think there's lots of opportunities there. Okay, so we live in the cities. We, we have this full life of the mind and of the body. Where does the food come from in a sustainable manner? Yeah, I mean, we still have to have people out there farming. One one thing that we're thinking about in sort of a, a, a larger visionary project we're trying to create um, uh, with a huge bunch of partners is this idea that all of that knowledge and intellectual power from the cities, how can we actually bring that back? Because what we need is an agriculture that is much more knowledge-intensive. It, it can't be uninformed any longer. It has to be very much informed by the, the best known science, etc. So it's knowledge intensive, management intensive. How can we bring the capacities that people get within the cities back? Who knows? Maybe we can, we can entice people back to the rural areas, uh, on farm sizes that make sense in terms of intensified, you know, agroecological farming. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thing we're thinking, a real transformation of agriculture. But it does sound from here, ever so slightly hippy-dippy, that we can all live on bean sprouts and organic apricots. Um, don't you find a lot of opposition from what I would call mainstream agriculture? Yeah, very hippy-dippy, but I am a hippy-dippy, so what can I say? <laughs> but no, I think just yesterday, in fact, um, we were saying about how everyone's talking, you can't really change diets, you can't change the directions that we're going in and all these things. But if you think about 20 years ago, people started talking about recycling aluminum cans, and that was like a weird concept, and some people, you know, and think about it now, we recycle everything now. So these concepts that sound a little bit out there now, I think they are the future, and we can, we can achieve these things. But you're right, there's huge opposition from, from mainstream agriculture, with the largest argument being we won't be able to feed people. And so that's another place that research has got to come in and show, can you or can you not? I'm not saying we know for sure, but there's been plenty of studies and even scenarios that say that if we do rejig agriculture towards more agroecological approaches, in fact, we probably can feed people if you address food waste, if you address these other types of issues as, at the same time. So we do need a lot more evidence for that. Um, and we need it soon because, because the, the larger, the more conventional agricultural approaches are also moving ahead very, very, very rapidly. But these are also driven by, you know, economic 
uh, incentives. There's a strong incentive to sell fertilizer, for example, not much incentive for organic, you know, recycling within systems. So again, that's where we need to look at the higher levels, political will, and those types of things, if we're going to see change. One of the interesting dilemmas here is that, I mean, um, we in the West have the luxury of saying, actually, we, we want to eat less meat um, because we think it's a good thing, it's good for the planet, and it's good for our bodies. Um, but how do you stop people who are finally getting some economic power from saying, well, hey, we want a chicken every day? I mean, I, you're, aren't you asking them to kind of learn from our mistakes in a, in a strange way? Yeah, I think you're right. I do think you're right. There is definitely that element. And I think people feel that also, especially, you know, being based in Africa, you definitely have that feeling that people say, oh, this is white people from Europe and your ideas and that sort of thing. I, I think that we still have, even in Africa, the growing acknowledgement of the fact that the ecosystems that sustain whatever it is we're going to eat are critical. We can't degrade the ecosystem so far. Nobody will even have a chicken every day or whatever they want. So we have to focus on making sure that our ecosystems are functioning and producing the food that we want. Uh, and in, in indeed, for example, in Africa, they've had high-level high level, uh, ministers meeting has, has um, endorsed a concept of ecosystem-based adaptation, for example, to climate change. So these ideas are not out of the, they're not out of the realm, uh, even in, in Africa and actually are quite popular within African countries. People have said, you know, Africa needs its own green revolution, another green revolution. I mean, certainly the, the green revolution of the 60s and 70s did seem to bypass Africa. What What's going to make the difference to how things unfold in Africa? The green revolution in Africa, it's a, it's um, Africa is really quite different than where the green revolution was successful. It was successful on deep, fertile soils in Asia, where they quickly rolled out the high inputs and the uh, the good the high yielding varieties and the irrigation schemes and everything all in a quite a uniform sort of environment and when when you say africa you're talking about an awful big place that's really it's too much to capture anyway it's huge right africa is very very big you can put all of europe all of america everything inside africa i don't know if you've seen that map it's uh -huh. very interesting um, but one thing that does characterize also the continent is um, actually in general across a lot of the area we have very, um, I don't like to say low quality soils, they're old, there's old soils, they are not very high in fertility, you have a base, a resource base that is already much more fragile than where the Green Revolution took place. So when you try to just come in and throw a lot of chemicals at it, it's not necessarily going to sustain. We've done an awful lot of surveying across the across many different countries in Africa. About 15% of the soils don't even respond when you add fertilizer because they're in such a bad state, either through degradation or because they naturally are so sandy, they don't hold nutrients or whatever. So one thing you have to grapple with is much more in Africa is the variability that you're dealing with and the, and the, the, the more difficult conditions. That gets us right back to where we started with restoring degraded landscapes and maybe even improving them. So how do you do it? I'm a farmer in Malawi. Um, what, what should I be doing? Yeah, you know, it's not rocket science, what we need to actually do on the ground with the farmers. There's tried and true methods for restoring and also even increasing the fertility of the soils. 
which includes things like doing terracing on sloping lands, grass strips to reduce sedimentation and, and hold water if you, if you don't have enough water, um, trees in the landscape are often a very nice trigger for maintaining soil carbon as well as all kinds of other ecosystem services. Uh, and we also need um, strategic use of improved varieties that are more about improving their capacity to cope with stresses such as low phosphorus or water stress, not so much pushing the boundaries of high yield, but dealing with the more difficult environments. So yeah, it's not rocket science. It's more about getting the combinations right for the different conditions, for the different farmers, and then getting the, the incentives there. Is there a reduction in productivity while you do that? I mean, is that... This is a great question, because from the West, this is a very Western question. <laughs> this is a, a question that comes from the U.S. In the U.S., I worked in... Um, uh, uh, at UC Davis, we had a sustainable farming, a big long-term project, and the whole first question was, how are we going to deal with yield re reduction if you transfer to organic systems? And they automatically said there was going to be a reduction, you had to rotate crops, all this kind of thing. But what you're talking about there is you're talking about very high input, very high yielding systems. And suddenly you withdraw the inputs. That's a shock to the system and you have to recover. Maybe it takes a few years. In a lot of these systems in Africa that are degraded, we're already talking about productivity that is so low that what we're talking about is increasing inputs, but inputs that will sustain the system over time. So you can increase yields immediately. So it sounds to me that actually you're quite hopeful about the future. <laughs> yeah, I guess I am. I guess I am, yeah. What's the downside? The downside? Mm. Well, the downsides are huge, aren't they? The whole global economic context that's not necessarily, you know, we, re we sort of do need a little bit more global support for changing the dynamic within agriculture, where agricultural agriculture is very extractive right now. Nobody really wants to pay for what it costs for the resources that we're using to produce the food. So food is based on the very small aspect of how much it's really costing in terms of the resources. So we do need some shifting there in terms of how much we're willing to uh, invest and pay for the real costs of, of food. And is there one fact or belief or something, is there one thing that you, if you could get agricultural leaders, world leaders, private sector, I don't know, in a room, and somehow get them to experience something or share something you know, what would that one thing be? You know, a friend of mine a couple of years ago, he asked me this question you did. Are you feeling optimistic? They look at me as someone who's who's got a pulse on what's happening in the world while they spend their time, you know, doing other kinds of jobs. or uh, and um, And I said I was feeling very optimistic because... I think this whole sustainable development goals is, is a huge sea change in the world. The fact that we're actually articulating what a sustainable future could look like within the, an, UN the UN sustainable development goals and the, the post-2015 agenda is what makes me optimistic because it's actually on a global level people accepting that sustainability is a primary uh, concern for all of us and, and then adopting... Uh, common goals towards that. And to me, that makes me very optimistic. What also makes me optimistic is I really do think that we can achieve this on the ground if we get the combinations right. I think that the, the soils are not, un, uh, are, are not irrevocably uh, ruined. We can, we can bring it back through intelligent use of resources.
Deborah Bossier, optimistic that the Sustainable Development Goals can help us to build a more sustainable agricultural system. I'm sure that'll be one of the main topics at the World Water Week coming up in Stockholm, where researchers with the Waterland and Ecosystems Research Programme of CGIAR will play their part in the discussions. The Thrive Podcast will be there too. And the Thrive Podcast is produced by me, Jeremy Chirpus at Greening, for the CGIR Research Programme on Water, Land and Ecosystems. And if you'd like more information, you can find it on the internet at wle.cgiar.org slash thrive. That's wle.cgiar.org slash thrive. For now, though, till next time, thanks for listening to Thrive.